You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John, chapter 18. All right, fill in the blank for me. It's always darkest before the dawn. Some of you know that one. It's always darkest before the dawn. That's an expression that most of you have likely heard before. It's, it's often used to encourage people during really hard times. It's often used uh, as a way of saying, listen, I know things are pretty dark now, but a new day is coming. Just, just hang in there and take hope in that. It will work out in the end. It's bad now, but after that will come good. Now, I suppose you could use that illustration to describe the events in John 18 and 19, but I don't think that that's the most accurate way to describe what we are reading here. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting to see how the Bible describes this hour, this situation, this most pivotal and critical moment in the history of the world. On the one hand, the Bible describes this as a very dark moment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has just been betrayed by one of His disciples. Though completely innocent, He has just been arrested and bound like a common criminal. His, and His beloved disciples, his, his closest friends, have scattered and have abandoned Him. He is facing an unjust, unfair trial. He's about to be brutally beaten and tortured, and after that, he will be crucified. And even while hanging there on the cross, Jesus will be mocked and despised. Can anyone doubt that this is the darkest moment in the history of the world? And upon his arrest, Jesus himself says this to his enemies in Luke chapter 22. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. What a chilling statement to come from the lips of our Lord, your hour where darkness reigns. But on the other hand, the Bible not only describes this moment as Satan's hour, as the hour of darkness, but throughout the gospel of John, Jesus refers to this moment as my hour. Jesus says in John 12, 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Is that not fascinating? The same hour, the same moment, the same event where the powers of darkness are at the peak of their hellish fury and power is also Jesus' hour. It's the hour of darkness, yes, but it is also the hour of glory. It's not first the evil, then the good. It's not it's always darkest before the dawn. I think a better analogy would be that the darker the moment, the more brilliant and overwhelming the light is. A light, no matter how powerful, is nowhere near as brilliant looking in the daytime as it is at midnight. Instead, The power and brilliance of that light is put on display all the more against the backdrop of deep darkness. And that's what's happening in this fateful hour here in John 18 and moving into John 19. This is the darkest moment in the book of John, and yet it is against the backdrop of that darkness that the glory of Christ is seen ever clearer, and His glorious brilliance overwhelms the darkness. The Apostle John 
at the very beginning of his book, he, he tips his hand very early on, and he tells us where this book is going, what direction he's going in. He says in chapter five or chapter one, verse five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so let's now together see and enjoy and bask in this beautiful, brilliant light of Christ on display in this dark moment. Stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great God. We're in John chapter 18. We'll pick up where we left off last week. That will be verse 12. And then we'll read on down through verse 27. Word of God says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word, and there is a message that your Spirit has for us this morning through this word. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, we're really continuing a theme that we started last week. We are beholding the brilliant glory of Jesus through this dark hour. The darkness is not overcoming the light. It actually is just serving to magnify and put on display His glory even more. So, we're going to keep last week's theme going here and think about how Jesus is glorified in our text today in this dark moment. And we see Jesus' glory one way it's displayed is in the display of Jesus' faithfulness unto death, and Jesus' faithfulness unto death. Jesus 
here clearly accepts the Father's plan that He is to die for His people. Last week, we read about His arrest, and we saw that He had the power to wipe out His enemies. If you remember what happened, He just spoke two little words. He said, I am, and He knocked hundreds of soldiers flat on their backs with that little display of power. Little display. (laughs) Big display through little words. And yet, nevertheless, despite that power, despite that might, Jesus lets Himself be captured and bound. And so, let's look at verse 12 now. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. First they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, what's John talking about there? Well, he's referring to an incident back in John chapter 11. So, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back a few pages to John chapter 11. John 11, so Jesus has, is, is, is increasing in His popularity big time. Raising somebody from the dead would, will tend to do that to your poll numbers, to your popularity. He's rising in popularity. More and more people are following after Him. And this is making the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin are the top religious leaders in Israel, it's making the Sanhedrin very, very nervous. They see their own power and their own existence as a nation dangling by a thread. So the religious leaders have a meeting in chapter 11 and look down at verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come away, will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, if this gets out of hand and Jesus gets more popular, if this moves in the direction of revolution, and people begin pinning their hopes for a rebel Jewish king on Jesus, the Romans will unleash the full force of their military might, and Jerusalem and the temple will be ground zero, and at best the Sanhedrin will lose their power and their prominence, and at worst, they're going to be among the first to be rounded up and executed and the nation obliterated. So the Jewish leaders, they see things spinning out of control, and they recognize the time has come to stop things before things get even further out of hand. And so look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, all right, here's that name. We just read about him a moment ago. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, Caiaphas is saying, you know what? There's a solution to this problem, and the solution is that Jesus dies. He's got to go. It's either him or us. Look at verse 51. We're still in John 11. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John is telling us here that things are not out of control, but that God is sovereignly superintending all of these events, and that when Caiaphas says, better for one man to die for the people than for the people to perish, he speaks better than he knows. 
Because when Caiaphas speaks, he's, he's, not speaking, he's not thinking in spiritual terms here. He's thinking expediency. Better for one man to be executed than for the Romans to come and kill us all. That's what he's thinking. But he's speaking in that moment better than he realizes. Jesus died for the people, but with a result that was beyond the wildest dreams of Caiaphas. Caiaphas plans Jesus' death to guarantee the temporary physical security of Israel. But God plans Jesus' death to guarantee the eternal spiritual security of people, not just in Israel, but as John tells us, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, who are all over the world, from Israel to Atlanta and everywhere in between. It is better for one man to die for the people as their substitute and representative than for all of the people to perish in hell forever. So yes, this hour is difficult. This hour is painful. Indeed, this hour is dark. But at the same time, in and through mankind's darkest hour, God was bringing about mankind's greatest salvation and the glory of Jesus, His obedience, His steadfast love and faithfulness, letting Himself be willingly bound and taken in, being obedient even to the point of death, is all the more magnifying His glory. And his glory is being all the more brilliantly displayed in this very dark moment. He is willingly letting himself be bound and led to execution like a lamb to the slaughter so that we might be saved. So we see Jesus' glory in the display of Jesus' faithfulness unto death. We also see his glory against the backdrop of Peter's faithlessness under pressure. Now, it's very unusual how the Apostle John tells this story. It's, it's a bit unusual. He's telling Christ's story, and he's telling Peter's story simultaneously. He's weaving these two accounts together. It's like a director who is switching the camera back and forth to different characters in the, in the story. Now, why is he doing that? I think that John wants us to contrast the two. And is not the contrast of Peter and Christ fascinating? They are both under pressure. They are both on trial, one formally and one informally, but they're both on trial. It's a tale of two trials. They are both asked questions. They both have an opportunity to be faithful, and yet it's as if John is weaving these stories together as a tapestry with two different colors, and those colors end up going in totally different directions, and he wants us to compare them. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and this is back in John 18, in case you flipped with me back to John 11 earlier, back now in chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, we learn in another gospel account that when the soldiers arrest Jesus, the disciples scatter and abandon Jesus. They run away. But two disciples evidently come back. We see it here. Peter and an unnamed disciple. We don't know who the unnamed disciple is. There's a lot of speculation about that. I'll leave you to study that and figure that out on your own. But clearly here, the author wants us to focus on Peter, so that's where our focus is going to be. 
Now, at this point, it would probably be beneficial actually for us to do a little bit of a flashback. So turn with me backwards again to John chapter 13. John 13. John 13 would have been just a few short hours earlier, and they're in the upper room during the Last Supper. And look at verse 37. Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, why can't, can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Watch out, Peter. The devil has his eye on you, Peter. He wants to tear you down tonight, Peter. Now, perhaps Peter thought that that sifting was coming in the garden. Earlier in chapter 18, uh, what we read last week, when hundreds of, of armed soldiers come to arrest Christ, and Peter draws his sword and is ready to throw down right there uh, against Roman legionnaires, ready to defend Jesus. But that wasn't the moment of sifting. Satan's attack turns out to be much more subtle, not in the form of armed warriors, but through the innocent question of a harmless servant girl. And so she asks in verse 17, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Okay, so this is it. This is, this is Peter's trial. She says, are you one of his disciples? And he opens his mouth, and he says, no. No, I'm not with him. This man, Peter, who earlier was ready to take on Roman legionnaires, sword to sword, he backs down now by the curious question of a servant girl. At one time, he was ready to die for Jesus, so it seemed, but now he's not ready to live for him, and he refuses to publicly identify himself with Jesus because he got scared. And when we read this, we might be tempted to think, I would never deny Jesus like that. Are you kidding me? I know I'm not perfect or anything, but if someone asks me if I'm a Christian, you better believe I'm going to say so. Peter may fall, but I wouldn't. Be careful. Be very careful. You know how Peter fell into sin? You know what the beginning of his downfall was? It's not complicated. Peter got here due to Peter's cocky, arrogant overestimation of himself. I'll never fall away. I will never deny you. I will not fall. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, just a couple of books going in the backwards direction from John. Matthew 26, this is amazing. Here in the scene in Matthew 26, Jesus has just told the disciples that they will falter and they will be scattered. And look at Peter's response in verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Do you not see the spectacular arrogance of Peter? He has just thrown all of his companions under the bus. He has exalted himself above them. 
Well, John may fall away. Well, James may fall away. Well, Thomas, well, we all know about Thomas and his issues with doubt. Obviously, he's going to fall away, but I won't. Look at what Jesus says next, verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus corrects Peter's cockiness. And what should Peter's response have been in that moment? The right response would have been, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. The right response would have been prayer. Oh God, I am weak. Oh God, protect me from my sinful heart. You are the judge of secrets. You know what's going on in here. I don't. God, increase my faith so that I will not deny you, but trust you. That's not how Peter responds. Instead, Peter corrects Jesus again and tells Jesus that Jesus is wrong. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Is this not the height of arrogance? I will never deny you, Jesus. I don't care what you say. Peter did not believe the word of Christ. He believed his own word over Christ's word. He argued with Christ, not just about that, but even in other places, we, we, we've seen throughout the gospel stories, he argues with Jesus about Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death. Peter always resisted this, always argued about these kinds of things. He tried to prevent it from coming true. The fall of Peter did not happen in a vacuum. Sin, your sin, never happens in a vacuum like it's just come out of nowhere. It always comes from somewhere. It always comes from something going on deep here in the hearts. And Peter's failure is the result of a denial of God's Word, a resistance to the plans of God, a lack of prayer, and an overestimation of his own strength. It comes from pride. And if you follow Matthew 26, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus' arrest, and Jesus goes to pray, and he wants the disciples to be in prayer with him, and they fall asleep. And Jesus addresses Peter directly and takes him to task and says, watch and pray, lest that you may not fall into temptation. It's coming, Peter. The sifting is coming. The devil's got his hungry eye on you, Peter. You can't do this in your own strength. It is easy to boast about our own righteousness and our own spirituality and our own virtue. But when the pressure really comes... When the heat is on, when we are squeezed by difficult circumstances, what is inside of us comes outside of us and is exposed. And what comes out of Peter is fear and faithlessness and self-protection, loving his own comfort and safety more than loving Jesus. I wonder if there's anyone here that's being squeezed right now by pressure and temptations, and I wonder what is coming out. I wonder if there is anyone here in this room who is thinking, well, I would never do that. I wonder if there's anyone here who has heard the warnings of Christ in the Scriptures about all kinds of things. Warnings about how we should 
live, how we should not live, what we should do, what we should avoid, and, and, and we did not hear the warnings, and we did not believe them, and we resisted them, and we're thinking, well, maybe things in here apply to other people, but I'm a different case. I'm an exception. I don't need to listen to this. And we argue with Christ about it, and we don't take the warning seriously, and we would not watch, and we would, would not pray. And then what happens? We fall into sin. And by the way, every sin is a type of denial of Christ. Well, I'll never deny Christ. Have you sinned? Every sin is a way of turning our back on Christ. When you sin and when I sin, it is no better than Peter looking into the eyes of the servant girl and lying, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm disassociating myself with with Jesus. And when we sin, we disassociate ourselves with Jesus. We do not heed the warnings. We do not believe the word. We trust in our own wisdom and our own strength and our own feelings. And then we are shocked when we find ourselves denying Jesus with our lips or with our lives, doing and participating in activities and sins we never thought we would be involved in types of things that formerly, like Peter, we would say, well, well, not me, Lord. Other people might do that sort of thing, but it will never be me. And lo and behold, we find ourselves doing the exact same thing, and we wonder, how did we get here? Scriptures tell you that Satan seeks to sift you like wheat. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against invisible, wicked powers and principalities. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Warnings and exhortations and lessons from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between that tell us that we are weak, that we are frail, that we need to strengthen ourselves through prayer. We need to bolster our belief through receiving the Word of God. Jesus says that if any man hears my words and does them, he's like a man who has built his house on the rock, and that house can withstand any storm that comes. But if you don't, it's like building a house on sand that will not be able to withstand the storms, the temptations, the trials. Peter was not building his life on the words of Christ. He was not trusting what Christ said, and he fell. And how many times must our castles of sand collapse before we listen, before we learn? Therefore, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You are vulnerable to all kinds of temptations, so beware of relying on your own strength. Avoid the foolishness of Peter. So Jesus' glory is on display through Jesus' faithfulness unto death. It's on display against the backdrop of Peter's faithlessness under pressure. We also see Jesus' glory in the display of the innocence of Jesus. You can go back to John 18 now. So we got the situation where Jesus is being questioned by the high priest. And it might confuse you um, because there's two people mentioned as high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. <clears throat> Annas, and here's, the, here's, here's what's going on. Annas was the high priest many years prior to this event. But the Romans deposed Annas of that role, 
and over the next several years appointed various sons of Annas to fill that role, one after another. And right now, this particular year, Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the, uh, was the uh, Roman-appointed high priest. However, under the Mosaic law, the high priest was actually supposed to be high priest for life. So when the Romans fired Annas, so to speak, many of the Jews didn't see that as legitimate, and they considered Annas to be still the real high priest. And in some sense, Annas was, was the real high priest as far as his power and prominence was concerned. In many ways, Annas was the granddaddy of them all, and he wielded enormous influence. So that's what's going on here. So, what's the point of John including this trial? Why not just skip right to the crucifixion? Again, let's remember what the Apostle John is intent on here. He is intent on magnifying and glorifying Jesus, and so everything that John writes is calculated. Everything is written with a purpose. And how does this section then glorify Jesus? Well, you take this trial in this section, and then you combine it with Jesus' trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, in the next section, and we'll we'll look at that next week. And from those trials, what do we learn about Jesus? One of the things that we clearly learn is that Jesus is an innocent man. We're going to see that this week, we'll see it next week, that Jesus has done nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, if you go down to the end of of chapter 18 and look at verse 38, notice Pilate's conclusion about Jesus after examining him. He says, I find no guilt in him. What's more, Pilate is so convinced of Jesus' innocence that he's ready to set him free. And when we get to chapter 19, it's going to be clear that Pilate does not feel right about any of this, and he wants to release Jesus. So, John is carefully and painstakingly recording these things, not just to demonstrate that Jesus was rejected, but to demonstrate that Jesus, an innocent man, was rejected and sent to death. And in this trial with Annas, Jesus' innocence is demonstrated not by Annas coming to this conclusion, but it is instead, I think, demonstrated in showing how it is Annas and the Jewish authorities that are the guilty ones. Just as there's a powerful contrast between Jesus and Peter, so there is with Jesus and Annas. For starters, we already know that the Jewish authorities have already made up their mind about Jesus before the trial. Caiaphas has said that Jesus has got to go, and from that point on, they begin a plot to kill Jesus. So the trial is a sham. The trial is a mockery, and in many ways, it is illegal. First of all, the ruling council was not supposed to meet at night. This was in the middle of the night, after midnight, before dawn. Secondly, it was illegal to meet for a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. And third, look at verse 19. It says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, on the surface, that might not seem like a big deal, but it was illegal in Jewish jurisprudence to ask direct questions to the defense. The law stated that you needed to instead gather witnesses. And, more than that, the first witnesses to speak would be those that would speak on behalf in favor of the defendant. None of that happened. This is exactly why Jesus answers the way he does in verses 20 and 21. Look with me. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. 
I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see what Jesus is saying there? Not only is he saying, listen, my teachings are consistent, my private teachings aren't different than my public teachings, but Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. They know what I said. Jesus is not being snarky here. He's not being difficult or a smart aleck here. He is asking them to follow proper jurisprudence. They aren't supposed to be asking him questions. They are supposed to first gather witnesses who will speak in his favor. And so essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play these games with you. You really don't want the truth. You've got your minds made up. And and, and, oh, guess what? You're breaking the law. It's illegal for you to ask. It's illegal for me to answer. I'm not going to be a party to this. And this is what stirs up one of Annas' officials to insert himself in the situation in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? And I love Jesus' response. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You see, friends, it was illegal for a defendant to be physically harmed before his guilt was determined. So again, Jesus is just further exposing the guilt of these people, and it is so contrasted with his own innocence and purity. And so Annas just gets frustrated, and he knows he's not going to win this, and he just sends Jesus to his son-in-law for questioning. Friends, we have just witnessed a trial, but in the most significant sense, the one who was on trial was Annas, and it is Annas who is found wanting, who is found guilty. How sad it is that Annas, supposedly a man of God, who's supposed to be the high priest, the top religious leader in Israel, the one who is to, who is to represent the people before God, and he yet is so wicked, and he is so corrupt, and he is such a complete and utter failure, and this passage is just begging for a better high priest a better leader for Israel, a better representative to stand between the people and God. And Jesus just shines in this passage. And the black darkness of this moment gives Jesus the occasion to shine all the more brilliantly as his perfect righteous innocence is put on display. He's not only the perfect sacrifice, but Jesus is the perfect high priest for his people. Here's another way, though, that his glory is put on display in this section against the backdrop of the guilt of Peter. Jesus' glory, we see it against the backdrop of the guilt of Peter. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. You see, friends, once you begin to compromise with sin, once you begin to open the door, it gets easier and easier to commit that same sin again and again and even to sin into greater sin. Peter has already lied once. He has already opened the door. It is easy for him to do it again. I've seen this happen with people time and time again. I don't care if it is lying or if it is sexual immorality or if it is an outburst of violent anger. The more you give yourself over to that sin, 
the easier it becomes to commit. And I think that what's I think that's what's happening here with Peter. Well, I've already blown it once. I've already sinned once. I've already lied. So what's the big deal if I do it one more time? We have all thought that way. Or, okay, I have. Maybe you haven't. But I have. So trust me, as an authority on sin, because I sin, this is how sin works. And so we descend into further sin becomes easier, and then over time, our consciences become hardened. So if you've been flirting with some sort of sin, if you've opened the door to any sort of rebellion, I want to urge you to kill that sin now before it gets its hooks further in you. There is no compromise with sin. You cannot make peace with sin. There is no friendship with sin for the believer. You master it or you be mastered by it. It's pretty much all there is to it. As the Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Let's look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Okay, so the pressure now has turned up even more. This is not just anybody. This guy is related to the guy who I just slashed in the garden. I tried to take his head off. Thankfully, I'm not a good swordsman. I missed and I hit his ear. So now he's confronted by this guy. Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Gospel Matthew tells us that Peter denied it vehemently with cursing. He is sinking further into sin, becoming more and more committed to sin. And as soon as Peter uttered those words and that curse... Somewhere nearby, a rooster crowed. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Oh, that crow must have gone home to Peter's heart, for its message forced its way into Peter's conscience. And what was the message of the crowing rooster? You're a failure. You're faithless. You're guilty. I wonder if you're hearing the crow of the rooster in your life. I wonder if you're hearing that crow right now saying, you've done it again. You failed again. You were cocky. You were self-righteous. You thought you were awesome, but look where you are now, and what you have done now is worse than what you have ever done. You are a hypocrite. Your faith is a sham, and so are you. And some of you in this room know exactly what I am talking about. You have heard the rooster crow, and I can speak to you about it because I've heard the same mocking cries in my head before. But the reality of our sin is not the end of the story. Yes, Jesus told Peter that he would fall and that he would fail. But Jesus says this to Peter in the Gospel of Luke. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But then check this out. But I have prayed for you. I have interceded for you. I am on your side, Peter. I pray that your faith may not 
fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Because Peter, after your sifting, you've got to turn to your brothers who will be cowering and, and fearful, hiding in the shadows of the night, who have also failed, who have also denied Jesus. And Jesus is telling Peter, when you have experienced my grace and forgiveness and mercy, go and strengthen your brothers. Go and help them to receive and enjoy the grace that I will lavish upon them so that they too may be restored. I'm going to restore you, Peter, and you're going to be an instrument of my grace to other failures so that they might know my wonderful mercy as you do. I have the same hope for you, Peter. I have a ministry for you, Peter. Being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from ministry. I restore sinners so that they might help other sinners. And we're going to see that in a couple of chapters in the Gospel of John. So if the cries of the rooster are echoing in your mind, if you are tormented with anguish and sorrow because you have failed yet again, if despite pressing your hands against your ears, you still cannot drown out the voice of accusation, there is good news for you today. The gospel can silence the rooster. The gospel is the answer to the voices of accusation and condemnation. This is the whole reason why Jesus in that garden did not let Peter complete his attempt to try to rescue Jesus. This is why Christ is allowing himself to be bound and, and, and like a criminal and put through this ridiculous illegal trial and whipped and mocked and crucified so that the sins that condemn us and make us guilty, all of our Christ-denying sins, might be taken from us, put on Him, and punished on behalf of sinners. So that, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Him, how then can you be condemned for your sins? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, The glorious mercy and grace of Christ is seen all the more brilliantly and beautifully against the backdrop of our black, dark, twisted, Christ-denying wickedness. Jesus is going away to die for what Peter is doing here and for what we have done. And the amazing thing about the gospel is not just that Christ took on your sins on the cross but that if you believe in Him, you receive His perfect righteousness. What a great deal that is. He gets your sin, you get His righteousness. I like that deal. The the innocence of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that is so put on display here in John 18, when you believe, you now are clothed with that same righteousness. When you trust in Christ and you are one with Him, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And some of you here who are overburdened with Massive guilt because of something that you have done. You need to grab hold of that gospel truth and believe it with all your heart. And be free from that sense of oppressive condemnation. That's what Paul means in Romans chapter 1 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, and the righteousness 
is not, he's not talking about your own personal righteousness, but a righteousness that is declared over the sinner by God himself. So when you believe in Christ, God looks at you now and forevermore and says, not guilty, paid in full, you are free. That's why Martin Luther said that God overturned all of Satan's work in his heart through the louder word of the gospel. Satan speaks a word of accusation. The gospel speaks a louder word. So come to the foot of the cross and let Christ silence the mocking crow of the rooster once and for all. Will you do that today? This is an an, an appeal, really, for both believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers, you can try whatever you want to make yourself feel better about your sins. It is not going to work, and you know that. You can try to be a good person, but you know you're not good. You can try to be religious, but you know it'll never be enough. It's time to surrender your life to Christ once and for all. Receive His payment for your sins. Receive His righteousness because your own righteousness cannot save. And believers, already believers, the gospel is for you too. You need to keep on preaching the gospel to yourself. You need to keep on banking your hopes on that gospel. Sometimes Christians drown in guilt and condemnation because we have forgotten what has saved us in the first place. We have forgotten the cross. We have forgotten that not only, not only that Jesus has taken our sins, but that he has clothed us with the perfect righteousness of Christ himself. And so if you're here this morning as a believer and you're struggling with that sense of guilt and condemnation, this, this, is, this is God's word for you this morning. He says, not guilty. He says, righteous. He says, my child. Let us never forget that against the backdrop of our darkest moments, the light of Christ and the gospel shines all the more brilliant. As John Newton said, the the writer of Amazing Grace, he said, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray.